0: So Thomas come here
1: Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Mary Riley Nichols. Mary holds a BA in anthropology from Harvard University and completed five years of residency in meditation ashrams in India and the US. A devoted student of Muktananda, she has taught yoga and meditation in New York City for over 30 years. Her teaching combines Iyengar, Integral, and Anusara styles of Hatha Yoga with the Upanishadic tradition of the wisdom and experience of non-duality. She offers frequent workshops on classical yoga philosophy and psychology, including Advaita non-dualism and the tantric methods of Kashmiri Shaivism. Currently, Ms. Nichols teaches stress management in psychiatric settings and is involved in ongoing research on the mind-body benefits of yoga and meditation. So, hello, Mary. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. I met you at, I guess it was the Nalanda Benefit, Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science... And I remember you gave a short speech, and I was just totally blown away by you. I thought you spoke with such passion and obvious love for the teachings that you were sharing. Um, So to start off with, I would just love to hear a little bit about your story and what brought you to yoga practice. You've been practicing and teaching for so long now. I'd love to hear a little bit about that.
2: Okay. Well, I uh, got into yoga sort of circuitously from studying anthropology mm-hmm. and in college my uh f- focus in anthropology was ecstatic religion.
1: Ah. That and sounds
2: fun. I know, and I loved it. I was so excited about this topic and I had a kundalini awakening uh while writing about ecstatic religion. Wow. And I'll tell you very briefly how that happened. So I was uh Writing about small-scale societies which have ecstatic religious movements, mm-hmm. and these are usually when soci- these societies are in breakdown. Mm. Their institutions are breaking down because, in most, a lot of these cases, contact with uh, Western culture, much more technologically advanced cultures, and this would seem to precipitate a very typical uh, and. Um, similarly structured activity of ecstatic religious movement. Wow. So as I was writing one night in my room, uh, I I was so excited. It felt like I was getting on to something. And I had the thought, as I was writing, you know, it was kind of a kind of corny generalized thought, but it was our society, modern Western civilization, is on the breakdown also because Mm. of contact and of global warming, which wasn't really happening then, but there was was things going on, and I could see the breakdown of um, social institutions, marriage, medicine. People didn't trust, you know, anything anymore, any of our institutions. And I said, the thought came, well, we must be due for a massive... Ecstatic religious transformation. Mm. Because ecstatic religion happens as a way to produce new paradigms which mm. are adaptive to the new reality. Right. So the moment I had that thought, there was an explosion. This t- thing you may have heard of—this explosive feeling at the base of the spine, movement of energy up the spine, which was wiggling, mm-hmm. and it felt like I, a, a fire hose. That was what I thought of the when I had the experience, and then the whole room and myself dissolved into white light. Mm. And the white light spoke to me, actually, and wow. said, there's a great master in your lifetime, and you will recognize him. Okay? That's what happened. Shit. So, I know. And <laughs> I, so, I came down, and I remember jumping up and looking at my chair, like it might have been responsible for this thing. I ran out and told my roommate, you know, and she's like, whatever. You know, you've been on the pipe or something. And I, I hadn't been smoking, you know, at that particular moment. So... I uh, then thought, well, that was really weird, and I should uh, try not to take it too seriously, but many more experiences happened Mm. over the next 18 months, and I thought I had epilepsy. Wow. Because they were yeah. very body. Mm-hmm. And um, I would feel that I left my body. I had very extraordinary experiences of leaving my body. I heard the sound OM, which I didn't know was OM. And it was wow. very frightening. So I get, went to the health services. And I went to three psychiatrists. And I had EEGs, you know. And um, they said there was no evidence of, of a you know, temporal lobe epilepsy or whatever they thought it might be. I just went along and then uh, the day came when i uh met swami muktananda and he he blessed me you know we used to go the first day i m- met him i went up on this line i didn't know what i was looking at i was like whatever i'm not interested in this but there's this guy i pranamed cuz that's what people were doing he bopped me with peacock feathers i went home <laughs> and i had amazing experiences of the awakened Shakti, and that and it went from there.
1: Wow! So before you met Muktananda and you were sort of studying these ecstatic religions, you 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 read about these ecstatic experiences, but you didn't really have any words for what was happening to you. Did you so, Did you attribute it to what you were reading, or did you just was it a separate experience? at Well, that point? you
2: know, I thought, I thought, and I at Harvard and maybe all colleges. Kids would have nervous breakdowns, uh, you know. And a lot of times, and I had a few friends, the quality of their delusions related to what they were studying. So I thought, I'm out of my mind, Yeah. you know. It just
1: happens to be aligned with what I'm reading about. Exactly,
2: (laughs) exactly. So I was keeping it to myself, Mm. trying to.
1: So you didn't have so much of the terminology then, but for those that might be new to this kind of experience, Kundalini Awakening, can you describe the philosophy of that? experience for those who might be new to it
2: um well and i don't want to scare people Mm -hmm. with my experience um don't think that's
1: it excites me i I, i'm it (laughs) sounds pretty good
2: (laughs) (laughs) some of us do like that sort of thing and uh and i do and you know when i when i was with muktananda he clocked that i was a, a, a space cowboy like you are, and we like mm-hmm. it, yeah. you know? So he gave it to me, man. I mean, you know, he says, you want to go? We're going to go, you know? It was like we drank each other under the table type of thing. <laughs> it, was, it was really fun, and I would think, God, this is, I'm not even holy. I don't know why this is happening, you know? And, but he would say occasionally things to say, if you love the, the, the God intoxication that's good. Yeah. You know, instead of some people going this is just nothing. You shouldn't be there. There's nothing, you know, that's not the truth. It's not the way. And he's a never mind that. If you like it, that's great stuff. Yeah. So that was the way I was oriented. So, but the philosophy or if you will um maybe even spiritual technology yeah. that we're talking about is that there and and the um uh, notion of the power or energy which is uh, potential and it is tend to be at the base of the spine of the human nervous system which can be unleashed mm-hmm. through contact with an awakened being through the in, uh, deliberate initiation by a great you know master uh, or sometimes spontaneous such as happened to me um, these this notion is not uh, specific only to the yogic tradition, because you will see that um, th- different traditions do talk about it, and I m- often mention the caduceus, which is the Greek symbol of health, mm. which shows a a, a, a pole uh, uh, around which are two yeah. snakes which meet at the top that is the actual map of the kundalini shakti which pertains to hatha yoga
0: wow. ha
2: and ta it refers to one of those serpents the ha is is the uh i believe the masculine energy and the ta the the so-called feminine or the passive and the and the active yeah. and i usually say because i ha- thought about it for a long time why are these two energies supposed to be equilibrated mm-hmm. in yoga and um I understood. I was actually thinking about it while I was vacuuming the floor and I and I lost power because I you know I tried to get the vacuum to go all over the apartment without having to plug it in in different places and I went over and the plug had come away mm-hmm. from one of the outlets there and I had to plug it in. I said, "Aha, ACDC." Yeah. Yeah. This is what, this is an, almost an electronic thing. Now you see the, so the Caduceus, we know the Greeks must have known about this energy. And we, there's other, uh, of course, the Kung Bushmen talk about the, the, the uh, power that at the base of the spine. They, and they get it to arise through chanting. Mm. So you can, and then uh, the Quakers and the Shakers were ecstatic and they quaked and they shook. And the quaking and the shaking is a, a body uh, expression of this awakened energy. And it, when, it, when you quake and shake, the <laughs> and bake and shake too, <laughs> but the quaking and the shaking is a, a purification of tension mm-hmm. in your nervous system, which is also like psychological tension and uh, emotional tension. Okay, and the relief of tension is really what samadhi is. Yeah. Samadhi and enlightenment is a profound cessation of tension.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I don't think I've ever heard someone uh, explain it so amazingly. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and just so, just so, in a way that's not sort of. Um, Mystifying, but actually very graspable. I mean, it's really so. you're you're explaining it in a way that I think is many people can get on board with. It doesn't sound too hippy dippy, even Good. though the hippy dippy is great too. Yes, of course. Um, so then, my uh, a question that sort of occurred to me while while we've been talking about this is: Do you think then that there are a lot of instances of spontaneous? Um, activation of this energy, but due to the fact that the that the kind of vocabulary to understand it is not available in the mainstream, that these these experiences get misdiagnosed or diagnosed. Period. You know, yes. by a physician, by a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. who would say, "Okay, this is indicative of whatever you know, delusion yeah, whatever delusion, psychosis." Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. I think that's very true. I have a great friend who is a. Uh, person who adapt with the kundalini shakti Mm -hmm. uh, and he is a psychiatrist and he has a great uh, uh, sort of way to understand people's different psychotic states. But I think he thinks these are uh, perhaps expressions of awakened energy. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times when you get a samadhi, you feel like you're God. Mm-hmm. And you might go around saying, I'm Jesus, you know? or <laughs> Which I'm, many people have. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah. And so um, then that could be some, uh, one of the things that happens. Because I know uh, sometimes when people are saying that they're God or they're the Mi- Archangel Michael, they're all actually having a very um, uh, universal kind of experience, an yeah. oceanic experience. Yeah. And and, um, and I I wanted to talk a little bit, if you will... About um, how these experiences and why why having these experiences now, why doing yoga is an adaptive way to proceed in reality as we are now, mm. so the science that we have, which is quantum physics, mm-hmm. which is the our most advanced kind of science that is very useful. It's it, quantum physical uh, equations are used in all of our electronics and everything. It's real stuff that yeah. we use, and it um, pertains to and it is relevant to the non-dual awareness, mm-hmm. which is the feature of samadhi and which yoga, which is symmetrically moving your body in such a way as you can apprehend the unity behind duality
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, and a, a um, um, quantum physics, you know, I do, I, I'm a lay person, but I, I can read a little bit. And so it does deal with uncertainty mm-hmm. because the, the, the state of the, un, of, an, of uncertainty, the non dual, not, uh, way of apprehending reality is a more advanced way, if you will. It's more primitive to say it's black or it's white, you yeah. know, that sort of uh, believing in categories. Yeah. And so the, the, the shaking up of categories and the tolerance of uncertainty is uh, something that we're developing by doing yoga mm-hmm. and by doing hatha yoga so that we can um, uh, go beyond dualistic thinking.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's such a that's such an incredible way to put it, and and it's making me think a little bit about you know, and you, you're doing a, a workshop this weekend on on the Yoga Sutras, and um, and my kind of understanding of Yoga Sutras, which of course is in, is inspired, or not of course, but it is <laughs> inspired by Edwin Bryan's translation. He talks a lot about, um, or the understanding is that you know Samkhya metaphysics is a dualistic system, uh, that ultimately it's dualist, And and from a certain perspective, it's not necessarily... um, uh, What's happening with Vedanta or Shaivism as a non-dual practice is different from what's happening with Samkhya. Do you you understand it in that way? I
2: understand what it is. I'm using his translation, which I think is the best one. And I that's one of the objections that I yeah. have to... I think that... And there's this thing called beta-beta, which means dual-non-dual. Yeah. To me, the Sankhya system, of course, it's dualism which leads to non-dualism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you can see throughout Patanjali that Patanjali wants you to be mm-hmm. in the non-dual state. Mm-hmm. and he, But the way you get there is to separate... One, the Sankhya uh, sort of path... Well, first of all, samkhya means enumeration, or it has to do with listing. So you're going to see, and in Buddhism, too, there's five this, there's eight yeah. that. And that's a, a mnemonic device so that people who are memorizing stuff, oh, wait, what are the five kleshas again? <laughs> you know, and because there's five fingers, you know? So you can remember these things as tools mm. in a in a society where you're not, you're not, you don't have iPads to look up stuff, mm. you know? And um, so, but the samkhya... Idea, and I really get a little crazy when people start. Going, it's a dual, and the other one's non-dual. Well, that's just not useful. I, you know, it's like I don't care. It's like, uh, uh, you know, how am I going to get to samadhi? Okay, so the the non-dual is to partly of what is going on in in um, Patanjali, and they go. It's purusha and prakriti, which means the. Purusha is the um, static witness, and Prakriti is is natural. Your your chakras are itching. (laughs) That's what's going on. (laughs) Uh, Prakriti is the... um, uh, nature, which is changeable, and time, you know. So, but it is very useful. You want to go to non-duality? Get into the witness state. Yeah. So, do detach. Yeah. So the the his dualism is a form of um, a tool for detaching. Yeah. Your identification—it's weird. It's what happens is you disidentify completely, and then you go into full identification. Yes,
1: that's so. I'm so glad you said that because that's actually what when I—that's how I've sort of had to. How I've, um, um, what's a word when you can bring things two together? Reconcile. Mm-hmm. That's how I've been able to reconcile them in my own understanding. Is that you know when you're first starting this practice, you need to be able to detach yourself from your bullshit. Yes. You, know, you need to be able to establish a kind of separation. Yes. You can't just I, immediately identify because you'll be identifying with all of your neuroses yes. and yes. the stuff that's making you suffer. So that's not very helpful, no. right? So it's yeah. like a part of the path in a certain sense is to be able to understand the world dualistically.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. How great. And so they're both, you know, they, in a way, dual-non-dual is non-duality. To see... Non Duality in dualism right right is really, yeah,
1: well, and exactly, and that's and my teacher actually says the same thing he says, even when you say the non dual you 're already establishing a duali- duality yes, because yes. you're because the duality between dualism and non dualism, mm-hmm. so there's always already a paradox there, yeah. yeah. Cool stuff. I love it. Yeah, (laughs) we're geeking out here every day. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about Muktananda. I want—I would love to hear a little more about the story. You mentioned him briefly, but I would love to hear the story of how you met him and the impact that he's had on your life, and how you know obviously he took your practice to the next level. So,
2: yeah,
1: love to hear about that.
2: In a way, I've—I've had to come to the conclusion that I really was. Uh, kind of had a strong destiny with Muktananda because of those previous experiences that were telling me I was going to meet a master and and you know i really didn 't believe that, but it when it did happen mm-hmm. and um then my uh, cathexis, you know that word it means mm. it 's freudian i think it it means intense uh f- energetic, uh, psychological focus. You get a cathexis. Like when you have a crush, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, boom, you know? And my thing with him was just complete and total. I mean, he destroyed me, I have to say. And when I say that, people get worried and upset. He really, really um, effectively (laughs) obliterated my ego. And I'll tell you a little about that. But he, um, so I I meet the guy. So when I actually met him, I told you I I went home and I was having all these experiences. So I, I go on this line. There's this weird looking guy, man. He was sitting there. He was bald. It was June in the Catskills. There was no air conditioning in the hall. And he, I recall, was bare chested and was sitting in this lotus posture. And he was kind of wiggling and moving about in a sort of a very weird way. And I couldn't understand what i was looking at like it was from mars mm-hmm. okay and i i looked down i cuz i was horrified i mean what is that is that a person it's just bizarro <laughs> and uh he starts hitting me with the feathers and i go back to my seat and i'm staring at this odd oddity and um he starts talking about meditating on the sound of om mm. and i didn't know what really om was or any of this, I was even though I was interested in ecstatic religion, I did no yoga, no meditation, so I had a few days before I met him, I had one of my weird experiences, and this is what it was. I woke up, looked out my window, and I suddenly heard ah, this incredible blast, this sound, okay, and it kind of like was a trumpet mm-hmm. and it was so loud and I'm looking at the window I say, everyone in the world hears this sound, that was my intuition it is, even though it wasn't bursting my eardrums, but I sensed this is a, everyone's hearing this, oh my god, mm-hmm. this is the end of the world this is happening to me I'm looking out the window, I'm hearing this sound, and out of the sky comes this thing, which I didn't know was a flying saucer and it had, it was full of lights and it was coming and zoomed at me and it went. It, it hit my third eye, and then I woke up. So this wasn't, I wasn't really awake. I thought I was awake. It was a quote-unquote dream. It was a very powerful, it was a vision, really. So for the next few days, I couldn't get the sound out of my head. Mm-hmm. And I. the thing about it was that it had no beginning and no end. Mm-hmm. The, I don't know how to say that, but I could hear that that sound was was almost like a tambura which goes in on itself. Yeah. It ha- seems to have no bottom, mm-hmm. no place where it starts. I know that sounds odd, but it's what it sounded like. So, you know, it turns out OM is called the unstruck sound. And so I'm thinking about that sound while I'm looking at this crazy-looking man, and he's talking about cha- meditating on OM. He points to me, there's about a thousand people in in the audience and he points right at me and says that's what you're doing now you're meditating on Aum and I was like what the fuck <laughs> and I like turned around to make a big display of it doesn't mean me I have no idea what you're talking about but I kind of knew what he. so that was my first encounter right wow I know then I go home I have the first thing that happened honestly I'll tell only one more of those crazy things but I I sat down in my bedroom, and I said, well, they were meditating. I'll put myself in a lotus posture. And I was immediately drawn to the sense that I was at the foot of the cross, of the crucified cross, at 3 in the afternoon, in the, in the reel, with people crying. And, and, that, and I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I, so then it began to dawn on me that all this stuff that had been happening was that Muktananda was the guy I was told. That yeah. I was going to meet, and now I go from being a daughter and a friend and a and a you know everybody's everybody knows me to being a crazy person. <laughs> okay, so I'm going. Oh my god, I've met this. I've met Cucullini. You know all this. shit. So now, people, I really were
1: your fr- were your friends and family think you were a little you'd gone a little cuckoo
2: cult. Yeah, yeah, I was stu- a stu- I would studied cults. Now it's a cult. I, my view, everything's a cult. You know, yeah. the whole thing is a cult. This entire experience is cult ish. You know, yeah, Republicans and Democrats, whatever. So, um, the. the uh, they would call me a cult crazy, um, you know, my parents... Luckily, I had the... My parents were extremely liberal and also so self-involved. They didn't care that much, mm-hmm. which was really lucky, because, they, uh, uh, you know, caring parents would have had me, you know, kidnapped and taken yeah, away and yeah. tried to, de- de- uh, you know, programmed. But they didn't give a shit, so <laughs> that was a great thing. I love... You know, they were wonderful, wild and crazy, both of them, and they didn't care, so that much... Uh, so i uh, the only place I could go with this unbelievably profound experience was back to the ashram and I would you know I visited several times, but now, when I saw Muktananda, I was in complete awestruck terror mm. you know more so I think than many of the people who would have been encountering the guy i mean he was weird, and he really did awaken people 's Shakti very shockingly and and powerfully. But in my case, I think I had that double dose of um, reverence because of my experiences prior. So I I still had another year of college, which I did, and I was having all sorts of stuff going on. If you want to know more about the uh, sort of powerful kundalini uh, experience that I had, his book, which is called Play of Consciousness, details all of his Experiences, and I had kind of little versions of the things he talks about, but including when I lived with. So then I started living in the ashram after college. Mm-hmm. I went to India. He freaking reamed me the fuck out in India. <laughs> to he he completed the job there. He really did, uh, and I I'll tell you about that another time. But <laughs> baby, he, yeah, he, he took me all away. And anyway. Uh, I was, like, looking at him like, are you fucking kidding me? You would do this to just an average girl? Like, this? Like, what am I going to do with this? But anyway. So that was about the age of, like, 20. 21. 21. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I tried to reintegrate into the world, and it didn't work at all. I was, you know, f- here I am, a Harvard grad. I'm fired from working in a copy shop. I'm fired from this job. I was fired constantly. Uh, you know, my boyfriend was not going to be my boyfriend anymore, you know. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he was like, out of there. And, um, you know, nobody wanted any part of me, and I had to actually stay in the ashram, and I became on staff there. Mm -hmm. So I did five years, and I loved it. We used to get up really early, you know, like 3.30 or 4, and every thought was service, you know. So I learned Seva. Well, you know, time went on. I did leave the ashram, but now... You know, I'm a 61-year-old woman. I Like my husband just got this accident, right? And he's okay, but he's got two broken limbs, some surgery and all this stuff. The seva is p- kicking in. Yeah. The remembrance, uninterrupted loving service. Mm-hmm. And it so makes everything so easy. You're not resentful, you yeah. know? And it, it, you're doing yoga, You know, when you serve your husband, you realize that it's not about I'll do yoga and you can go fuck yourself. You know, Mm -hmm. it's 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 a different thing that we do. Sorry about that. Is that okay?
1: (laughs) No, it's okay. Yeah, we we have we have a lot of of sassy talk on these episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think anybody who's listening minds. (laughs) So that's so this is such an amazing story. You should you should definitely write a book about your uh, ecstatic experiences. I think people would love to hear about that. Um, So. I want to know a little bit, you know, Muktananda was famous for, um, you know, being one of the forerunners, is that a right, the right word, forerunner, of bringing Kashmir Shaivism to yes. the West. Mm-hmm. And um, a tradition that, you know, for me has been profoundly uh, influential and, and but it really almost went completely, you know, it was almost lost. Yes. Um, so thank you, Muktananda mm-hmm. um, and Lakshmanju. I know he yes. was one of the central figures. Yeah. So what does... What does, Shaiv- does Kashmiri Shaivism mean to you in terms of what it has brought to our understanding of yoga?
2: Um, well, yeah, and we, you know, for the first few years while I was going through all that stuff, I, I heard about the philosophies, but they weren't, like, really that interesting right. to me. I didn't care that much. But we chanted a lot in our ashram. We were, we were very devotional and chanting was where the Shakti, your Kundalini Shakti likes chanting, okay? But then, later on, um, the Kashmiri Shaivism, it's its as if it's the most um, sophisticated, if you will. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's modern and um, refined. And I've been noticing, since I'm studying Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, that the... Um, uh, Shiva Sutra mm-hmm. is a bit of a riff yeah. off of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra. I oh, see there's so? yeah, yeah. some things going on. where because For example, the first Yoga Sutra, well, the first is Atha Yoga Nushashanama. That's not it. The first sutra that's important is um, Yoga's Chittam Vritti Nirodha. Yoga's the stilling of the Chittam Vritti. And um, the, c- the uh, wonderful thing Patanjali is doing there is saying there's this thing Chittam, I'm sure they must have known that in his day but chittam is is mind but it's almost it's a substance that can have qualities like vritti and vritti you know what it is by saying it it's like a twist it's a turn it's a it's a vortex well then Ch- kashmir shaivism the first shiva sutra is chaitanyam atma mm-hmm. chitti. what's important that that kashmiri shaivism it says by the way this chittam where the vrittis go Is God Mm -hmm. That's the really important thing That's happening here In Kashmiri Shaivism The mind is God In contraction Yeah, And therefore You don't want to like Whip it into shape Or punish it It's divine And you can Enthrone it By With love And mantra Which is you know Elevate the uh, Feed the mind The beauty Um it so it's to the reverence for chiti you know is is I think the the feature of Kashmiri shaivism. Mm. it's not this thing you wrestle or it's so hard to deal with monkey mind, you know i don't like that because monkeys are great and we're related <laughs> to them, but don't denigrate it it's god yeah. okay yeah and we oh, the most amazing thing is that the last pada of uh, of uh, Patanjali's yoga Sutra, the last chapter it's called kaivalya pada
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um, means the kaivalya means supremely alone yeah and when you're in full samadhi you feel like you're the only being on earth on in the universe yeah. it's the most amazing thing it it's like there's no that's where there's no tension at all it's all it's all the one mm-hmm. so that's kaivalya and uh, he patanjali talks about the power of the mind in the last two chapters what you can do with it if you focus the mind You become what you focus on. And that's a lot of what his, you know, his third chapter is the secret. You know that secret stuff about what you, you as you think so you become and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. We um, all that you know, we're a little over it, but he <laughs> thought of it way first in a much more <laughs> elegant way.
1: Thanks, Patanjali. For yeah. the original yeah, secret exactly. by
2: Patanjali. Yeah. but yeah, Kashmir Shaivism to me is about th- they understand the mind as God, and that that's you, how useful that that way of thinking about our mind. That's
1: amazing. I, I really really love the way that you tied the 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 Shiva sutras into Patanjali's Yoga sutras in that way. Um, because it makes total sense. Do you think, though, that um, you know, if you were to teach someone, um, you know, philosophy as you do, do you think it makes sense, like sequentially, to start then with the Yoga Sutras? Kind of. This kind of goes back to what we were saying about how, you know, first you got to disentangle yourself from all of the yes. crap before you recognize that the crap's God. Yes. Do you think that? Do you think that actually, well, in terms of like pedagogically, how we introduce this stuff?
2: I love it. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great uh, justification mm-hmm. for uh, you taking on Patanjali first. That's what we're doing in this program, yeah. teaching. And I, I, I love that you just gave the reason for it, um, exactly, um, because that Shaivism stuff is very, uh, it's, a, it's refined stuff that, uh, that should be prefaced by some basic roots in, yeah. in some practice.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and it requires, I think Yoga Sutra really requires you to do a lot more work On your body, uh, on your body, mind and on your, you know, on your psychological afflictions, right? And we want to clear those out, right? We want to clarify before we can start to realize.
2: You know, my kind of radical thing is that you can, you can. Don't skip the Yoga Sutras, but if you want to play around with Shaivism while you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess some
1: people are just going to be called to... I mean, I feel much more inspired reading the Shiva Sutras than I've ever felt reading the Yoga Sutras. Uh The Yoga Sutras feels like a little bit of a chore. It feels like it gets a little bit, you know, redundant, (laughs) clunky, clunky, and there's a lot of lists, you know. It's like, oh gosh, another Ten Commandments. You yeah, know what I mean?
2: <laughs> exactly. Those virtues are like, oh brother, yeah, exactly. Not me. No. Why do I have to? <laughs> yeah.
1: So so brother yeah, Charya. but Shiva Sutras is like, oh yeah. I mean, everything is divine. It sounds yeah. really good. Yeah, that's it. So um, to speak. So in, in the same vein, then. Um, you know, and, and that's what I really love actually reading. And I don't think I've mentioned this on the episode yet, but I've been reading, you know, your writings on your website, which for everybody listening, please read. And we're going to feature some of them on embodied dot com. Mary gave me her permission. So I'm excited to share some of those with you because they're really profoundly beautiful. <clears throat> and what they're what uh, and what we can tell you do so well, Mary, is um, is integrating these traditions, being able to understand them all as a part of the same kind of thread of spiritual evolution. Yes.
0: Um,
1: because it's very easy I think for me as you know, you know previously sort of on the academic path, I'm still kind of stuck in this categorizing mode where I want to be like, well this is this tradition and this tradition says this and that's different from this. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm still in the kind of in the practice of drawing distinctions, uh-huh. you know, in a certain kind of way. Yeah. And you really don't sacrifice the the understanding of the tradition and that that's what I think is 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 something that happens a lot. And we were talking about this before the episode, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this, this, um, the difference between melting everything together in a way that is not true to the essence of what these teachings are, you know, in a way that kind of turns this tradition into something that it isn't. Mm -hmm. And what I see you doing, which is really... um, being able to bring them together, just like I said before, you're, you're bringing these traditions together, um, but understanding that they are part of the same journey and the same path without, you know, melting them all together. Does that yes. make sense?
2: Yeah, I, I think that in, it, I, I understand what you're saying, and um, it's almost like there's a sequential and linear way to apprehend the tradition, and then there's a holistic way, which shows that in any full expression of the tradition, you're gonna see all of the uh, traditions in it somehow. It's like whole. Yeah. It's like a hologram. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was something else I w- wanted. T- oh, I have a thought. Do you yes, want to have? Please. Hear it? Ha- let's have a thought. <laughs> okay. So. I'm noticing, too, that, um, well, there's, I have a few thoughts, but one of them is that, you know, we kind of mystify and make holy these higher states of consciousness mm-hmm. as, a, as a sort of a, as a species as we are as humans, you know, uh, and we see Jesus Christ, okay, and if, if you look at Patanjali, Uh, You will see that he is an expression of a guy who has mastered these things that Patanjali talks about, such as there's in the third chapter, he talks about being able to walk on water, making Mm. yourself that light. Um, making yourself dissolve, you know, because there were the, the disciples talk about seeing him dissolve. Mm. If you've ever read Autobiography of a Yogi, there's also descriptions of, of Babaji doing stuff like that. So Patanjali talks about that. Oh, here we go, we're going to, you know, it's like in Star Wars, the the, the, the Ewoks were, like, worshipping. the, when the uh, Some of the heroes came into their little compound, and they were like, ooh, and they were like doing, like, pranams, right? Yeah, yeah. So really what we're talking about is... The, the evolution of consciousness, that's where we're headed. We are primitive, but in a million years, or I don't know how long it's going to take, that will be the, the uh, capacity mm-hmm. of, our, of our, this instrument. Mm-hmm. And it, we call it holy, but it's really just what's going to happen. Yeah. And even Jesus said, you will say to the mountain, move and it will move. So, I mean, there's a part of me which says, you know, you could just be scientific about this and say that we're, what we're doing is trying to generate our, uh, the next evolutionary step in our consciousness before we all, the shit hits the fan here and we're all getting the Darwin Award, <laughs> which it may be in this planet. So let's let's bump it up.
1: What's the Darwin award? Uh, the
2: Darwin award is when is the when someone does something really foolish and gets uh eliminated from the gene pool. <laughs> so it's basically when you're you're doing something that's so maladaptive that you will not
1: <laughs> you will not survive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So uh so we this is an adaptive thing that we you know I love because to me nature um you know is is the tool which shapes our consciousness and is forcing us to become uh, developed. Now, uh, a lot of biological scientists don't like that because that means there's a purpose and a consciousness behind it all, and uh, they don't like to say that nature is honing. You know, we were yeast cells. You know, that was our ancestor. So why are we, you and I talking like this? Uh, To me, nature... Well, because of stress. If there was no stress, we'd all be yeast cells, And so nature's always stressing us, you know, Mm. causing us to to leap higher, you know.
1: Yeah, that's amazing.
2: Okay, I want to ask
1: you a little bit about, um, you wrote this article on your website, Hatha Yoga is Kundalini Yoga. Would you explain what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, I, in a way, referred to it a little bit, in um, when I talked about the Caduceus and the which is if you look at mm, uh, maps of the uh, spiritual f- uh, b- subtle body of c- based on in hatha yoga, well the word ha and ta as you probably know refers to sun moon, mm-hmm. which is positive negative, which is the ida and the pingala. Yeah. So the, these seers that could actually see the sushumana, which is the central channel. And if you do spend a lot of time doing these practices, you will you will get to see within yourself stuff. I can't see it like that detailed, but I've seen a lot in there when I'm really, you know, meditating and chanting for hours a day. It, you see shit. So anyway, there's this central channel, and then there are these two energies called the Itha and the Pingala. Now, Hatha, yoga, is supposed to... Uh, you're doing things with your body to uh, make the, as they say, the uh, the energy in the hot ha- and cold becomes equal, and when that's equalized, like plugging something into the ACDC power, the power goes on in the central channel, and so, of course, people are kind of confused. I think about. Um, what Hatha yoga is about. You know, they think it's advanced if you can kiss your own ass, as I say, <laughs> you know, and look.
1: While uh, upside down, <laughs> standing on one fingertip. That's
2: it. You know, you're the greatest. So, um, uh, but <clears throat> the, when when my Kundalini was awoken and uh, others around Muktananda, we, you would see spontaneous Hatha yoga poses happening. And, you know, sort of the, the, for example, you know, people stretch out a leg and come forward doing the what maha mudra. Sometimes it's called a, just a half seated forward bend. So, thing, the things you do with your body in hatha yoga enable the kundalini shakti. It mm-hmm. gives her ability to move around. Yeah. Okay, you're helping it. Yeah. And also the greatest thing is that those are the physical things. But if you do mental gestures, mm. then the kundalini leaps. Once your kundalini is awakened and you start, it becomes this internal uh, guru. Which Jesus talked about this too. So you, what happens is, okay, if I'm thinking a really contracted negative thought, I feel like my kundalini doesn't like it yeah. and I feel crappy and I don't feel my luminousness. Yeah. Now when I think a happy, joyful, good thought of unity, so I'm doing my work, I'm doing the ge- the cognitive gesture. Then the Kundalini says, yeah, that's the way and gives me a shot of bliss. Yeah. And it keeps doing that. So, um, you know you start to say do i want a shot of bliss or do i want to feel like shit so then you keep doing what it likes you to do and one of the things it likes you to do is hatha yoga mm-hmm. because that makes the energy flow as they say prana flowing evenly mm-hmm. is a is a, what it, prana samachare samadarshanam in the shiva sutra when when prana f, prana samachare sama is even so uh, evenness of prana samadarshanam gives you the darshan of equality or samadhi mm. yeah
1: wow far out
2: so um so now another geek here yeah, you know i can't I'm, talk like this i'm to, geeking out about anybody. this the whole this whole
1: conversation <laughs> is so amazing um so i now i want to ask you now just from from a perspective of someone who's been teaching and has been you know through many stages of an evolving yoga world are you i I don't know, maybe I, I know the answer to this just from our conversation, but do you feel um, optimistic about the, the the state of yoga right now? Or do you feel, are, are you of two minds about it? I mean, what... I guess what I'm implying is that, as we know, yeah. you know, yoga has been sort of reduced in most people's minds to a physical practice and, and these teachings that we're talking about. I mean, most people don't know anything about what we're talking about Who and practice yoga and might consider themselves yogis. Yes. They've never heard about Kundalini Shakti. They've never, they don't really even, or, uh, you know, and maybe they just kind of categorize it as, oh, that's the weird religious stuff and that's not what yoga is anymore. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I'd love your thoughts on that. Like if you feel um that this movement towards physical fitness is a uh, is problematic um you know so anything you want to share
2: well i in a way i i see um of course i've seen like the a huge explosion of mm. of yoga uh since when i left the ashram in 1981 you know, it was like yogurt. You do yogurt, you know, and all that. So now people all know about it. No, I'm very optimistic. I think it because of the way evolution works. Okay, you get a meme that 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 gives you an advantage. And I'm going to tell you about that in a second. So you get this thing, like a yogic thing that gives you an advantage in your life, which is an an evolutionary adaptive advantage in your survival, makes life okay, you're going to do it. And so as people are going to go through the hatha yoga physical thing, and they're going to start to, the kundalini thing is going to happen everyone's shakti is going to be awake it has to happen and it's like if it doesn't happen we're going to uh you know it's it you know it's it doesn't bode well but that's okay you know the the soul is eternal and we're here we've got some time we definitely do we're having a ball aren't we <laughs> um wait okay i got to think about yes what's the this? meme okay the meme saying... well a meme you know what a meme yes, is I know what a so meme is, yeah. it would be the you know so the idea of prana mm-hmm. okay when prana gets abroad and people understand it now we just saw two sets of debates i'm not going to say talk about the candidates but <laughs> we had the presidential debates and then we had the vice presidential debates now the pundits and pundit is a sanskrit word for a scholar but the pundits after the debates analyze who won right yeah well in the first debate one of the debaters was uh, fidgeting, moving about, huffing and puffing. And they said he, he was snorting and blowing his nose. Or I don't know. I didn't really watch the whole thing. But he, they said he was breathing weirdly. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk about that. And uh, Patanjali says, when your mind is uh, di- disturbed, your bre- breathing will become disrupted. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't in charge of his prana. She, on the other hand, appeared to be calm. Okay, mm-hmm. who won? The calm one, and the one whose prana was under control. She does do yoga, by the way. I thought Yeah, because when she was um, being grilled by at the Benghazi hearings, which were very impressive in terms of her performance, I thought she mentioned. You, there was an off. Uh, she w- was in the hallway going, "Oh, I'm doing some yoga between between in the breaks." Wow. Okay. So anyway, now in the second. Um, debate, which I also didn't watch but heard the pundits, they talked. One guy was calm and, and smooth and consistent, yep. and the other guy was volatile and, and uh, explosive and weird. So, who won? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the advantage of learning to control and use your prana. Now, I'm about to go on a, a, a public speaking thing tomorrow, I'm supposed to speak. The whole idea was that Robert Thurman was going to speak this, uh, to launch our program. And he's a very famous, uh, well-respected, revered master mm-hmm. of Buddhism. So he changed his mind. They said I was going to speak. And I'm like, holy shit, I got to do this? I don't want to. It's like you go to the theater looking for Patti LuPone and you hear that tonight's performance is going to be you know someone else. You know? <sighs> anyway, so I'm like, oh, this is awful. So I calm myself down. I get ready. And then, oh, my God, he changes his mind. He's going to do it again. I'm like, that's good. Then he changed his mind again, and he's not going to do it. So it's me and Joe Luiso are going to do it. Okay. You know, I, ca- I calm myself down. We're going to do it. Then he's going to do it. Then he's not going to do it. Now he's going to do it. No. But i got to do it with him.
1: Oh, no. That's what I'm doing. He went somewhere.
2: back and forth that many times? Yeah, there was three cancellations, three changes, and now he's, now it's me and him. Okay, Robert, so, Robert, I know. Robert. Well, you know, it's the I call it the Shakti. Yeah. It's the Shakti It's the Spanda uh, yeah, It is And you know The Shakti will play with you Are yeah. you really a master? Can you handle it? Mm-hmm. Can you be prepared And then it doesn't happen And you don't like get grasp on But my plan mm-hmm. People who have plans yeah. Just stop it <laughs> Stop it
1: That's going to be the title of this episode <laughs> Mary Riley Nichols on not making plans.
2: (laughs) Don't. You can make them, but don't hold on to them because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It will happen completely different, especially if you're on the path. You know, the Shakti is going to say, well, now I'm your teacher, so I'm going to give you experiences, and they're going to be challenging. Yeah. So um, this is, I'm handling this, of course, I'm terrified of public speaking like anybody, but I'm handling it using pranayama. Like, I'm breathing yeah. so that I stay calm. There's no, and I'm not thinking about the future. That's the other thing. I, don't, I you know, I'm not thinking, what's going to happen tomorrow? What if he does this? What if I do that? No. You prepare, but you're not obsessing about what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's two, two things that yeah. you do. Do you get nervous when
1: you, when you lecture, when you give these talks?
2: Yeah, slightly, but again, because of the, the practice of Ishwara Pranidhan, mm-hmm. which is what Patanjali calls it, and we call it you know, uh, bhakti or service. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm serving my guru. If it goes well, it's, if it goes badly, I'm doing my best, I go home, I don't take credit, and I don't take blame. Mm. So luckily, if it's shit, it's yeah. not my fault. If it's great, it's also not my credit.
1: Yeah. Wow, I need to learn a little more of that. That uh, helps. Yeah, I still have an issue with that for sure. So this has been an amazing conversation. And, um, and we're actually going to... Um, finish, wrap up this interview and then go record a Facebook live, um, show Sadika. So those of you who are listening, if you want to see Mary, you can go on, it'll still be on the Facebook page. Obviously this will be released. This podcast will be released after, um, after the, the live show. But if you go on the Facebook page, embodied philosophy, you can find Mary's, um, interview there and see her, um, adorable and, Luminous, luminous face. <laughs> <laughs> so here's um, the last question. I just want to um, maybe talk about what the what you think is kind of the least maybe um, the teaching that has a lot to offer from the tradition, but is maybe the least talked about. And I know that might put you on the spot. There's a lot to draw from. But if there's one that you could say is sort of the least represented in conversations around yoga today, but has the most to kind of offer us um, with regards to where we are culturally or
2: individually. The only thing that's really coming to mind, and this might sound very weird, is, is Swadhyaya which can be om or just chanting om. How yeah. powerful it is, and is throughout the canon. It's so weird that om is this powerful. Yeah, and Patanjali says om is the guru of the universe. Yeah, and then he says um, repetition of om leads to realization of its meaning. Mm. So. It's easy, accessible. The only thing is you have to put your pride away because if you're you know, a big-shot a big person, you know, you, oh, wow, well, am I not going to open my mouth and say, oh, this is embarrassing? Yeah. So do it alone at home. But it's, uh, to me, that's a, a really useful thing. And, of course, it leads to the spanda and the uh, sensitivity to vibration. Mm. And, you know, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika talks, they call Om Nada, yeah, yeah, and um, they say all this that you're doing is to all this hatha yoga is for the in order to become competent to perceive the nada. So in a way, maybe that would be an answer. I don't. know. So when you chant, I, I'm curious
1: about this mm-hmm. actually, and it's interesting that you brought it up because I actually had it down to to bring up if we if we had had a little more time. So I'm glad you brought it up. But when you chant, um, when they're talking about the practice of chanting Om, is it? Is it just, and of course, you know, people are like, oh, I chant them all the time, and the beginning of my class, I do it three times, <laughs> you know, when they go to a, a Hatha yoga class, which is, you know, pretty pretty um, standard. But most people don't chant it continuously. So what is the, 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 the practice of chanting home? Is it just that as you would chant three times at the beginning of class so you would do continuously and you just yes. take a breath in and you chant totally. and then you take a breath in again and you chant and again and again, again, again
2: and it's cool like i sometimes i neglected in my Hatha yoga also classes but um, you can do each of a... We, we all breathe in, and we all om, we all breathe in. Or you could all be just at the end of your breath, continuous. Yeah, so it's one continuous. Yeah. yeah. And like I've done it in the ashram. Man, we've done it for like, you know, two hours, mm. okay? You do om for two hours in a group, you will have lots of experiences, and you will experience uh, all sorts of stuff, man. Yeah. And a really good realization. So om is the guru of the universe. Yeah. Does it matter at what... Uh, you know what note
1: you're chanting, Om? I say no. No. It's
2: like your, it's your tone. It's your, you, you find your, your voice today. Also, yeah. it's different all the time. So yeah. I, I would say no. Okay. Great, yeah.
1: Mary. This has been so interesting, and and thank you so much it's for so sharing much your time. I'm excited thank to do our little video uh, interview. We're going to talk about pranayama. Um, so, Mary, uh, to as we close. Do you want to share anything about what's coming up for you that maybe somebody who's interested in, in studying with you, like where you teach yoga, any workshops coming up that people might be interested
2: in? Thank you for asking. Um, well, my uh, thing that's happening is uh, a six-month program in yoga psychology for the Nalanda Institute, mm-hmm. and um, it starts this Friday. The, every fr- one Friday a month will be a quote-unquote famous speaker. It's Bob Thurman this Friday and me. I don't know why me, but maybe it'll awesome. be. Because you're awesome. I don't know. And uh, then the two days of Saturday and Sunday are pretty much me and uh, my wonderful co-teacher, Marley McGovern who's gonna mm. who's administrating the thing too and that's going to be once a month so um, if you miss this month there might be a way to get into the following five months and if not come to the Friday night lectures by the famous people and introduce yourself to me and um, I do work for the Nalanda Institute through the Tibet house doing a meditation program and there'll be lots I'll try to keep my website uh, fresh. I teach Hatha Yoga twice a week, once on Sunday and once on Tuesday, at, both at 1230. Uh, and you can see the details. It's on the Upper West Side. It's on my website.
1: Great. That's Life in Motion?
2: Life in Motion, yeah. yeah. I'm going to come to that Tuesday oh, class that'd be soon. fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah.
1: Do you talk philosophy in your class? I
2: do. I love that. Uh,
1: I hope Perfect.
2: you
1: do. <laughs> All right. And then your website is meditationmary.org. Org.com.com. Yeah, Sorry. Oh, you com. Right.
2: You must have got that early. I guess I did. I don't know. I just thought it would be an easy to remember name. It, yeah, it's great.
1: MeditationMary.com. Yeah, it's
2: like Typhoid Mary is what <laughs> I was thinking.
1: You know, I, my, uh, my partner Jimmy is uh, making a musical with his friend about the story of Typhoid Mary. Really? Yeah, that's another conversation oh, for great. another day. <laughs> oh, all right, Mary. Thank you so much. It's really nice to chat with you. Me too. Until next time. Thank bye-bye. You. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mary Riley Nichols. If you're interested in hearing more about Mary's offerings, go to meditationmary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Sciences Training in Yoga Psychology, of which Mary is the director, just go to nalandainstitute.org. Until next time, friends, namaste. Bye-bye.